fifth chapter of Matthew. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Searching for a miracle. Searching for a miracle. My friends, Jesus lived in a world marked by violence. Jesus lived in a world under constant threat of terror. The centuries on each side of the first millennium were difficult in ancient Palestine. Times were rough. The future seemed uncertain. For one, there was political oppression. Rome was in control of the region. And around 40 years before the birth of Jesus, the emperor Caesar appointed Herod to be the king of the Jews. Herod became a puppet of the empire. His lavish building projects paid homage to Rome. He increased taxes on peasants. He seized land from small farmers. His gilded greatness was built on the backs of the poor. This is why, far from being Herod the Great, most thought of him as Herod the Horrible. He was little more than an insecure megalomaniac. Herod was paranoid. He was thin-skinned. His fragile ego needed constant attention and affirmation. He even sent his wives and his sons to death when they disagreed with him. Herod was crazy. To put his craziness in context, we're talking about a man that before his death, he concocted a scheme to ensure national mourning. Herod imprisoned beloved Jewish leaders throughout the region. And whenever he passed away, he ordered the jailers to execute these men because this would prove to Rome that Jews were struck with grief at his passing. I'm here to tell somebody Herod was crazy. So despite his claims to greatness, we see that Herod was a tiny man. The late great preacher William Sloan Coffin may have said it best. He said, ego does not make us big, it diminishes us. For there's no smaller package in the world than a man who's all wrapped up in himself. <laughs> uh, so there was political oppression. There was political oppression, and along with political oppression came religious insecurity and ethnic conflict. History has proven one perennial fact. Whenever people feel the crushing weight of oppression from above, it's easier to point the finger of blame at those who are below. The socially insignificant always make for reliable scapegoats. For it would be treason for temple officials to point to imperialism and resource inequality as the source of human suffering in Palestine. 
that might make those in power upset. This is why I can hear their conversation through the portholes of history. I can hear religious leaders saying, we don't want to offend those in power. That would be unholy and impious of us. So rather than offend, maybe the best scheme would be to ingratiate ourselves to those in power. Let them know that we're good religious folks over here. We're not like those folk over there. This, my friends, is how religious and ethnic uh, divisions, this is how it's fueled. Oh, can't you hear them? We're the Pharisees, we're good. We're disciplined, but those Sadducees over there, they believe in a weird theology. They're dangerous, they must be kept in check. Oh, can't you hear them? Well, as Judeans, we're law-abiding and we're upstanding, but those Galeans up to the north, they're ethically questionable and they're morally compromised. Their neighborhoods are crime-infested. They make us all look bad to Rome. And group after group plays this game. And thus, they begin to engage in what psychologists call the narcissism of minor differences. We accentuate differences between ourselves and others in order to make ourselves feel superior. And in the process, we lose sight of the many ways that we're actually more alike than we are different. Most of us, we're just trying to live positive and productive lives, yet it's easier to attack the humanity of another. But in the process, we destroy the most valuable parts of ourselves. We destroy our own capacity to empathize. And this, my friends, this is the context in which we enter today's text. This is the historical context that frames Matthew chapter five. It's a context of political oppression. It's a context of religious insecurity. It's a context of ethnic strife. And if we use history as our guide, then we know that whenever oppression, insecurity, and strife are combined, we end up with a Molotov cocktail of destruction. And it's not the rich and powerful who are ignite and go up in flames first, but rather it's those who are already the most vulnerable. And these are the people, the most vulnerable in ancient Palestine. They're the ones who flocked to Jesus. These are the folk who sought out Jesus. Why? Because so many of them were in search of a miracle. Uh, these people, these people who found themselves between a rock and a hard place. These people who found themselves socially desperate and culturally anxious and insecure. These people who were sick and tired of being sick and tired. They had heard about this man. Oh, they heard about this man who had antibiotics in the hem of his garment. They heard about this man. They heard about this man who was an effective gynecologist and an experienced dermatologist. They heard about him. A man who was a proven pediatrician and an insightful psychologist. They knew about Jesus because word spread that Jesus, 
Oh, that he was a lawyer who had never lost a case. And he was an undertaker that never buried a body. These are the reasons why the crowd gathered around him. These were the people, the most vulnerable in ancient Palestine, who were in search of a miracle. These were ordinary folk in need. I doubt any of them saw themselves as revolutionaries. I doubt any of themselves saw themselves as overtly political. I doubt any of them saw themselves as freedom fighters in any sense. As a matter of fact, if we're honest, these were probably the same type of folk who would have told Moses, take us back to Egypt. These were the folk. They, these weren't folks that had ever stoned a prophet. Why? Because they probably didn't think their voice mattered enough anyway. These are just ordinary folk, people with problems like you and me. But since they were from the lower classes, it's probably easier to view them as problem people, a collective blob and stain of humanity. But I'm here to tell somebody, when we read through the gospel records, it's actually miracles were for them. Miracles told their story. For when we read miracle accounts in the Gospels, I want you to understand that miracle stories had a political point. Miracle stories represent a revolt against the status quo. Miracles in the Bible were put there as a form of symbolic protest. Oh, does anybody here remember a woman with an issue of blood? The Bible says that she had been bleeding for 12 years and that she had seen doctor after doctor and they had taken all of her money and rather than get better, she only got worse. Well, I'm here to tell somebody that this story was a revolt against gendered purity politics. For priests would not let her near the temple. So when her we hear her story and we hear the story of Jesus healing this woman, we hear a story about God. A God whose love for the vulnerable amongst us outweighs our concern for law and religious custom. That's what we hear in this story. Does anybody remember the story of a blind beggar? The Bible says that the man was born blind. And this even led Jesus' disciples to ask the question, well, who sinned? Did he sin or his parents sin? But when we hear about Jesus reaching down into the dirt in order to make a healing ointment, the point becomes clear. This story is not about that man's sight, it's about our vision. It's not about how he sees, but it's about how we see sin and suffering in our world. For when we look at God, we see a God whose ways are not like our ways. For you and I, may seek simple answers to complex questions. You and I may need to rationalize and justify somebody else's suffering and somebody else's pain, but this miracle tells us that God's amazing grace exceeds our finite and limited comprehension. Well, does anybody remember? I know y'all are biblically literate people. Does anybody remember the story of the 10 lepers? Ten young men who came in search of Jesus for healing. 
Maybe they had this dangerous and this damnable disease, or maybe this disease of leprosy was just a metaphor. Maybe leprosy was just a metaphor to describe 10 young men whose bodies were always and already marked as dangerous. Their bodies were always and already marked as a plague on our society. Their bodies were the sort of thing that some might call undesirables. Some might refer to their bodies as thugs. Oh, but look at Jesus. Jesus' healing teaches us an important moral lesson for we judge the physical appearance where God looks on the heart. We worry about the color, the condition of one's skin, yet God measures the compassion in one's soul. I'm here to tell you that there's something important about Jesus' miracles. And I'm trying to explain why everybody in this text was crowding around Jesus. These were just well-meaning folk in need of a miracle, well-meaning people who want to be well-adjusted in their society, good folk who wanted a quick fix. But Jesus, we see Jesus had something else in mind. Rather, rather than providing a quick panacea to solve their individual problems, Jesus to take, takes an alternative course of action. Jesus sits down on the hill and he offers what has become one of the most famous sermons the world has ever known. The Beatitudes, a term that literally means blessing. Here, Jesus provides the people with more than an instantaneous change. Jesus provides them with an alternative view of how they might see themselves. Jesus provides an alternative view of how they might see their world and thus how they might begin to see one another. Most of the people in this crowd most of the people there had accepted Caesar and Herod's vision of the world. Most of them embraced the mores of the day. If you had asked most of them about who was blessed, they would have declared probably like crazy Herod, blessed are the rich, for Caesar Augustus is God. Blessed are those who boast, for this is how we make a name for ourselves in the world. Be blessed are those who hunger and thirst for power. For this is how one gets ahead in life. Blessed are the strong, for they can crush the weak. Blessed are the warriors, for they shall be called the children of the empire. Like so many of us, these people were tempted to embrace the worldview of those who were in power. Like many of us, these people were compelled to compete on the field of somebody else's values. If they can just fit in with those in power, then I might be blessed. But Jesus flips the script. He tells them, you're already blessed. You're already full of honor. Why? Because God's kingdom provides us with another vision of prosperity. 
God's kingdom provides us with another ethical path toward living a productive life. The Beatitudes provide a blueprint. Oh, do you want a miracle? Do you want to be blessed? If so, change your frame of reference. For blessed are the poor, for it's theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for there are the ones who will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be the ones who are shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. You, 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 you woman issue of blood, you blind beggar, you ten lepers, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. If, if you are search of a miracle, then I'm here to tell you that you need to look no further than the people who are sitting right beside you. Care for them, honor them, celebrate their lives, for when you and I embrace the blessings of God, then we're actually living out our own miracle. I must admit, I must admit, my friends, these are some of the lessons that I've learned over the past year. These are some of the lessons I've learned from some of our friends here working with architects, engineers, and construction crews on this church renovation project. They've taught me some things. They've taught me a lot about life. Ah. For one, they've taught me the importance of having blueprints in order to execute a plan. In a major renovation, I've learned this, Caroline, in a major renovation, nothing ever goes quite as planned. It's easy to get distracted. It's tempting to take shortcuts. Yet, when you have a clear articulation of the task at hand, when you have a clearly defined picture of what the end result ought to be, it's easier for you to remain calm. It's easier to remain focused. It's easier to remain disciplined in the face of the unexpected. <laughs> and this is what I believe the Beatitudes offer us. Just like the prophet Micah that we read for you hearing, both Micah and Jesus say essentially the same thing. Stick to your vision of what's good. Oh, I don't need your theological sophistication. I don't need your elaborate sacrifices. I've already given you a blueprint of what the good life is all about. Oh, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. Well, if you're searching for a miracle, then follow this blueprint of life and build your own miracles. Well, that's the first thing that this renovation project has taught me. Stick to your blueprint. But the second thing this renovation process has taught me is the importance of collaboration and cooperation. But once you have your blueprints in place, then it's time to start coordinating the many factors and many personalities involved. It's time for us to begin working together. During a period when we are seeing parts of our nation at its work, when we're seeing parts of our nation at its utmost miserable and worst, I would come to this church 
and I would watch the renovation and construction team and the engineers, and I would see our beautiful country at its best. I witnessed the power of diversity. Every day, people from vastly different worlds were coming together. Some were from Harvard, some were from private firms, some were from local unions, yet with their eyes on the same plane, they were able to work together to build and not to destroy. I had the privilege of getting to know some of the principal players. My brothers and sisters, I watched people of Italian, Polish, Greek, and Mexican descent rely on one another. Some told me of how their parents entered this nation two generations ago from Europe, and others entered when they were teenagers from south of the border. I've discussed blueprints at my dining room table with Jews, Muslims, with Christians. Some people on the job were gay, others were straight, others we had no idea. They just all seemed concerned with one question, where's the coffee coming from? <laughs> and I've watched each other. I've watched them celebrate each other recognize birthdays, attend children's weddings, cheer for each other's kids on the basketball court. And from this beautiful quilt of diversity, they worked from the same blueprint. In collaboration, they produced something beautiful. Together, they built a miracle. And this is what I believe God desires from us. Stop searching. You and I must stop searching for individual miracles, but rather let's heed God's blueprint for our lives. Do justice, show mercy, walk humbly, care for the poor, be a peacemaker, stand up for righteousness and justice. And in doing so, you and I might just end up together building the miracle from which we can all benefit. We might just end up together being the people and the nation God has called us to be. Let the church say amen.